All right. Welcome back to Last Week in Medicine. I'm Stephen Jenkins, and this week I'm joined by Dr. Brian Locke. Welcome back, Dr. Locke. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming. So it's April 22nd, uh, and uh, things seem like they're pretty chill overall at the hospital, at least when I was on. Not a lot of COVID, just back to our normal grind of extremely complex patients with like organ transplants and weird infections. I don't know what yeah. it's like been for you. Oh, totally the same. It's, it's good. It's been a couple of weeks since I've taken care of a COVID patient, which is pretty weird to say. Yeah. The only one I had last week had been there for like three months and she had like a kidney transplant and it was more just like, you know, all Oof. of these hospital complications. So, which was, which was a bummer, but, but yeah, no fresh COVID it's weird. And, uh, you know, walking around, don't see a lot of masks anymore. <laughs> I think no. people have given up on that, which I'm kind of like, okay with when levels are super low like this, it's like, yeah, I give people a break from the masks. Don't be the mask police. And then when it's like, when we have these like higher numbers, like then, then you have more, maybe some more capital to ask people to wear masks again, but I kind of think they won't. <laughs> yeah. I kind of worry it's out of the bag. I was uh, flying back uh, from a trip to Alaska on, uh, I guess, I guess that was Monday when they took down the, or when the mandate was struck down and they uh, like mid flight over the overhead just sort of said, Hey, mask mandates done. And, you know, everybody like cheered and took their mask off, which was kind of like, Oh boy. You were um, on an airplane. I was for like that? on an airplane. <laughs> yeah. So, you oh know, you got to imagine if you, uh, we're trying to weigh the risks of benefits of traveling, you know, if you're immunosuppressed or something similar. Yeah. Not a great dynamic there, but I, I well, share. especially if you already like committed to a flight, knowing that everyone would be masked and then they're just like, just kidding. It's like, no, no, I paid for a flight with masks. <laughs> yeah. I can't believe they did it that way, but yeah. Yeah. Not, not super mature, but whatever it's, it's over. So yeah. Cool. Well, um, I, I got a few few articles to cover today, so I'll start us off. Um, the first one I was going to do is oral tebipenem, pivoxyl hydrobromide in complicated urinary tract infections. This is the ADAPT-PO trial. It was published April 7th in the New England Journal of Medicine. And basically, it's looking at an oral carbapenem uh, to treat urinary tract infections. And so we all know that UTIs are super common and antibiotic resistance is growing. And so one uh, figure that this paper cited was that in patients who are hospitalized with UTI in the United States, 20% of the organisms now are extended spectrum beta-lactamase producing, so ESBL organisms, and 33% are resistant to fluoroquinolones. And I didn't check to see kind of how that compares to Utah. That's probably higher than our Utah numbers, but kind of alarming numbers when, you know, you have that much resistance, it makes it hard to make empiric antibiotic decisions. So, and we haven't really had a lot of good oral options for resistant organisms. You know, sometimes you'll get an ESBL that's sensitive to like nitrofurantoin, but you're like, can I really use nitrofurantoin for a complicated UTI? Probably not. Or we've used phosphomycin sometimes, but there's concerns with that one too, using it for like a systemically ill person. So, so a lot of times our patients just end up getting like a course of IV antibiotics, which means midlines or pick lines and the complications that go with that. And then there's the added expense. And then often it's just difficult logistically to get people set up, especially if they don't have like insurance. So this trial is looking at this new oral carbapenem. It's called tebipenem. 
and they're comparing it to IV ertapenem. Um, and tevipenem is a carbapenem prodrug that is converted to active carbapenem by enterocytes. And it has broad spectrum activity against ESBL producing organisms and fluoroquinolone resistant organisms. But like ertapenem, it does not have activity against pseudomonas, which was, I think, an important point. Um, it is a randomized double blind, double dummy, non inferiority trial. And the eligible patients were those adults with a diagnosis of complicated UTI or acute pyelonephritis, and they excluded patients um, who were suspected of or confirmed having a carbapenem-resistant organism, uh, creatinine clearance less than 30, septic shock, severe hepatic impairment, pregnancy, immunocompromised, or allergies to beta-lactams. Uh, patients were randomized in a one-to-one -one fashion to three times a day oral tebipenem, so every eight hours, plus a daily dummy infusion of fake ertapenem or they got daily IV ertapenem with three times a day dummy tablets of fake tebipenem. So that's, I guess, where the double dummy comes from, which is nice that they actually went to those lengths to do that. Um, the treatment was for seven to 10 days or up to 14 days if the patient had bacteremia. And then they looked at kind of three different populations in here when they were doing their analyses. They had their intention to treat population, which included everyone who was randomized, then they had a safety population that included everyone who got at least one dose of a drug. And then they had the more, most important group was a microbiologic intention to treat population. And this included all the patients who had a confirmed diagnosis based on a positive urine culture that excluded any pathogens that were resistant to the trial drugs. So the primary endpoint they were looking at was overall response, which is a composite of clinical cure so no you know, resolution of symptoms, no new symptoms, and then microbiologic response. And so um, that meant that they had a reduction in the uropathogen level from baseline, which had to be at least over 100,000 colony forming units to less than 1,000 on a subsequent urine culture that was done at 19 days follow-up. So um, the non-inferiority margin that they selected was 10%. And I guess explain to me, Brian, because I never understand non-inferiority margins, but if they're saying the margins 10%, are they saying that like if it was 100% successful for ertapenem and 90% successful for tebapenem, that that would be non-inferior essentially? Yeah, basically, you know, sometimes they use the absolute difference. Um, and so you have to be careful whether they're using a relative or an absolute non-inferiority margin. But the idea is just that you say, all right, if this is less than 10% worse, that we're happy, um, yeah. essentially, is what that means. Which to me, that seems like a pretty wide margin, 10%. When you're talking about saying this antibiotic is as good as this antibiotic, like you, that's a pretty wide margin that they selected. But then they went to the FDA and revised it to 12.5%. So they made it even bigger. And that was because of concerns with the COVID pandemic of you know, logistics and uncertainty, et cetera. Yeah. One of the tricky things about the non-inferiority margins is that the sample sizes you need gets really big, really fast to where if you shoot for a small one, you're unlikely to get a positive result. Um, mm. And so you get these big non-inferiority margins that you kind of have to hold your nose when you're, <laughs> you know, interpreting the trial. Fair enough. And I mean, they did get a fair number of patients like this is not a small trial so they got 1372 patients randomized into the trial 
Um, but out of those only 868 patients, so 63% were they actually able to get a confirmed positive urine culture so that they could include them in their microbiologic intention to treat population. So of those 50% had a complicated UTI and 49% had acute pyelonephritis. 11.5% had bacteremia and 19.7% had SIRS criteria. Um, and then the numbers for their, how much resistance they had were, were impressive too. They had 24% had ESBL producing organisms, 39% had fluoroquinolone resistant organisms, and 43% were resistant to trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. So this was like a pretty good population to be studying these more broad spectrum antibiotics in. Um, this was an international multicenter study, but interestingly, 99% of patients were white. <laughs> That's like, wow, 99%. But looking at it, it looks like almost all of the patients were recruited in like Europe. So whatever. Yeah, I think there was seven patients from the US, but they uh, added it in there. I think the FDA makes there be at least a few from the US if you're going for. Oh, interesting. Here. Interesting. We had seven. Thanks, guys. Um, so for the primary outcome, overall response at test of cure visit, which was day 19, 58.8% of people who got tebapenem versus 61.6% of people who got ertapenem, which I think was well within that 12.5% margin of non-inferiority. So I feel better about it now. That seems pretty good. But I would say those numbers do not seem very good as far as like, wait, only 60% of people were cured from their complicated UTI. Um, but if you look at like the overall response at the end of treatment visit, so whenever they finish their antibiotics, 97% of people who got tabipenem and 94.5% who got ertapenem, you know, were, were cured at that point. Um, and at 99% had no symptoms versus in the tebapenem versus 98% in the ertapenem. So like at the time that they finished the antibiotics, they were like clinically cured and microbiologically cured. But then at that day 19, when they actually checked urine cultures again, you know, a significant portion, like up to 40% of patients did have bacteria growing again in their urine. So that's just interesting, right? So the authors hypothesize that, you know, that's likely due to these protected foci of bacteria in patients who have complicated UTI, maybe they have like abnormal, um, you know, anatomical abnormalities or instrumentation, you know, they got like a suprapubic catheter or something. And so then you get this asymptomatic regrowth of bacteria after you stop antibiotics, they're not having UTI symptoms anymore, but if you check their urine, they are in fact still growing these bugs. <laughs> so that was interesting, but you know, overall, like it seemed like it worked and it's kind of a cool trial too, because you're using an oral against an IV. And uh, we don't usually see that in the treatment of pyelonephritis. Even if you're going to treat them with orals, you usually give them some IV up front. And so this was kind of a cool trial that they went straight to oral antibiotics, finished their course, and they had basically the same effect as IV ertapenem. Um, and overall, it seemed like there weren't like a lot of bad side effects, you know, a little diarrhea, nausea, headaches, and all the C. diff was in the ertapenem group. So um, I'm sure it won't be cheap, but I look forward to having this in our armamentarium. Yeah, I, I agree. I think the, the study seems good at, at proving the hypothesis or at least supporting the hypothesis that the oral is, is equivalent. You know, I, I really do think that the 
other information you get from the study is the interesting part though. You know, that one third of the people that get enrolled in the trial don't end up growing any bacteria in their urine. And that again, that a third of the people relapse at least microbiologically within a week is just sobering. Uh, you know, it brings up the issues with, uh, asymptomatic bacteria for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the, yeah, just the risk of recurrent UTIs and, um, yeah. How do you prevent those from coming back and people who have like an indwelling catheter and things like that? So it's, uh, yeah, it's a problem anyway, more, more carbapenems to learn how to pronounce. Yeah. For sure. This is the only one I'm going to use now. No, I think, uh, unfortunately it doesn't cover pseudomonas. So we're, we're still stuck with mirapenem. <laughs> yeah. Well, All right. Well, Brian, you got our next one. Yeah. So the article that I'm going to review is one that came out in JAMA Internal Medicine uh, in April. Uh, it's called Assessment of Awake Prone Positioning in Hospitalized Adults with COVID-19, a non-randomized control trial. Um, first author was uh, Kian and uh, senior author Rice uh, from Vanderbilt. And so th this study was um, looking at proning, you, you know, which prone positioning, both in ARDS generally and in COVID has been shown to work to prevent mortality in patients who are, you know, intubated and passively ventilated on the ventilator machine, e whether it works or not in people who aren't intubated. And so they're breathing on their own. Um, is still an open question, you know, guidelines say to do it, but honestly, the, um, support for that is somewhat mixed. Um, and there's been several studies, including a big, uh, sort of meta trial, meaning there were about six trials where they sort of got together beforehand and said, Hey, we're going to run these trials in basically the same way. And then combine them all that were done that, uh, did show reduced intubations, but no mortality benefit. And, you know, based on all of that, the guidelines say to do it. I think a lot of people are doing it, um, which I don't know, it, uh, what, uh, Jenkins, when you're, uh, have COVID patients on the floor, are you having them prone on their own? Yeah. I almost always forget to ask them to do that, but that is something that's kind of supposed to be part of the, the care package. Like, you know, we do all of these standard things and one of them is ask people to so yeah, prone when they're able to, if they remember to, it's kind of like, yeah, and use that incentive spirometer too, when you think about it. Oh, totally. Yeah. And, and that's almost exactly the same as the non-intubated patients that are in the ICU that it's sort of haphazardly done. Um, and so to investigate that, this group, um, which, as I mentioned, uh, primarily out of Vanderbilt, um, although also enrolled patients at uh, North Shore Health in, I think, Illinois, um, and, and what they did was they took everybody that was admitted to the hospital with COVID-19 and on oxygen, but not mechanically ventilated, meaning not intubated, they were all eligible for inclusion. Um, and ultimately they got 500 of these patients and really essentially no other exclusion. So a, a broad population was included and they assigned people their treatment groups by what the final number of their MRN was. And so if you had an MRN that uh, ended with an even number, you got usual care. And if you had an MRN that ended in an odd number, uh, then you went into the proning group. 
Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about that, but that's why the title includes this non-randomized control trial piece of it is because that was the um, group assignment that they used. And so they assigned to the two groups, the group that got prone ended up being on their belly as recorded by nurses for a medium of, of 4.2 hours, uh, which if for the mechanically ventilated patients that we prone, you know, the protocols say to do it for 16 hours. So worth keeping in mind that quite a bit less time prone in this study, um, although that's consistent with all the studies that uh, look at proning awake patients just because they don't generally want to stay on their stomach for 16 hours straight. Um, they looked at the primary outcome of the highest level of oxygen support that the patient needed five days after enrollment. And uh, the statistics are a little bit confusing, but they basically looked at the odds ratio of needing one of those higher methods of oxygen support, meaning, you know, regular old nasal cannula is kind of at the bottom, needing high flow is worse than that, needing BiPAPs worse than that, needing mechanical ventilations worse, ECMOs worse, and death is worst of all. And uh, what they showed was that there was no benefit to the amount of support needed at five days. And in fact, actually, the proning group uh, had worse uh, oxygen support needs at five days. And even if the, you analyzed it other ways, like looking at just the intubation rate or the mortality rate, all of those sort of trended um, in the wrong direction in this study. Um, and so it is sl slightly different than that meta trial that I mentioned earlier, where they had sort of found benefit in intubation rates. None of, none of the studies have shown convincing differences in mortality rates. And I think it's interesting to dwell on a couple of points around that. So, so clearly this study was not blinded. Uh, obviously you can't blind whether somebody's uh, on their belly or not, but that, you know, the lack of blinding becomes more important when the outcome that you're looking at is something that is a result of clinician behavior. And so I do think it's a valid concern in this study to say, well, you know, maybe part of the reason this proning group was needing more oxygen support is because the people that are taking care of them are left less comfortable with people on their stomach. You know, one possible reason that you might have that uh, discomfort is just that if somebody decompensates, you'll have to flip them over before you intubate them. And so you may sort of almost preventatively have them on more oxygen support. Um, and so I think that is a limitation of the study, you know, that said sort of everything trended in the wrong direction. And so I don't think that's the whole story here. Mm -hmm. Um, and that one of the things that was explicitly worse in the, in the proning group is that a, a greater percentage of folks had gotten better and discharged within five days uh, in the non-proning group, which makes you wonder if, you know, part of the reason why people are staying in the hospital longer is just that you haven't like proven the, you know, the mildly ill folks haven't proven that they can just hang out on their own because we're still bothering with all this flipping stuff, which, you know, is a potential downside to doing things like that. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, with those caveats aside, a lot of the attention around this study has centered on this, like, why didn't they just randomize people, which I think yeah. is a very interesting question. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and so to sort of start with the answer about why they, why they did it this way. So this was a pragmatic trial, meaning they're trying to run like a simple, quick 
study to get the answer to this question. And that a big problem in this sort of study is like, how do you keep the costs low? And that there is actually a lot of infrastructure that goes into randomized control trials in terms of like study coordinators to support enrollment and that you enroll somebody and then you have to query this central database, which gives you a randomization number. And then based on that, you get assigned a treatment group and there's all this kind of overhead that adds cost and time and is sort of a barrier to enrolling more folks. And so the reason to do something like this, where you just use the last digit of the MRN is because it's cheap and quick and easy. And I'll say that as far as like drawing inferences from this study result, even though it's not technically random, it's equally good for supporting a causal inference to what the study result means. And the reason for that is that, you know, the, the reason randomization works to make study results causally interpretable, meaning if I see a difference in the stats, I say that's because the intervention caused them. The reason for that is because you ideally want your treatment assignment to be totally unrelated to the clinical circumstances of the patient, right? Because the thing mm -hmm. that you really don't want in a study is, hey, that all the people that got prone were subtly less sick in some way that was influencing people's decision whether to do it. And then you don't know whether it's the intervention or the things about that patient that made them get that treatment. And so the most important thing is just that the treatment assignment has nothing to do with the patient's risk for an outcome. And that in the case of randomization, you know that that's the case just because by definition, randomization doesn't depend on anything. It's mm -hmm. random. And so there couldn't have been some way that the patient's clinical circumstance influenced their treatment group. You know, conversely, with the MRN number, as long as we accept that the MRNs are just generated randomly, which mm -hmm. randomly with respect to the patient's comorbidities, you know, it's not random in that they are generated in some sequence, but yeah. that it is random in terms of like, it's not that sicker COVID patients get even numbers. And, yeah. You know, that, that seems like a very safe assumption. And so the MRN assignment is fundamentally, you can ignore that as being any different from randomization. Um, and this whole idea about like finding things that function essentially like randomization is, is, uh, what an instrumental variable is. And, and so the instrumental variable, what that means is that it's some factor that influences the likelihood that somebody gets a treatment that has nothing to do with their risk of having an outcome. And so randomization is the ultimate instrument because mm -hmm. it totally determines what treatment group you're in. And it has absolutely no influence on clinical outcomes. Whereas you can imagine something like, uh, say we're talking about D dimers and pulmonary embolisms that you could say, whether you're 499 on your D dimer and 501 on your D dimer is almost like an instrument because it influences greatly, whether you're going to get a CTPA scan and subsequently anticoagulated, but that there's really not much difference between you know, your risk of an outcome if your D dimer is 409 versus whether it's 501. And so that's an uh, example of a weak instrument. Mm -hmm. And then if we think of this MRN randomization, that's, that's an equally strong 
or almost equally strong instrument as straight up randomization. And yeah. so, you know, Todd Rice, who is the senior author of this, he posted on, on Twitter that he originally wanted to use the term pseudo randomization, yeah. uh, you know, which is a little bit vague, but I think better captures what they were really mm -hmm. doing here, but that the editors sort of put a kibosh on that, which I think is probably not a smart thing because I think people read the title and they assume that the treatment assignment was somehow done with, you know, like an observational study where right. it was clinicians discretion yeah. and that therefore you need to be worried about all these different types of confounders. Exactly. But, but in fact, this was essentially identical to a randomized study that was just done in a cheap way. And yeah. honestly, I think this is probably <laughs> the future of how we should be doing studies because the biggest problem in clinical trials is this that we don't do enough of them. And mm -hmm. so if we, if we did more, cause it was easier to do with things like this, you know, that that actually is going to help us in the long run. Um, and so that's kind of a long, a long sidebar <laughs> here to say that, yes, it was technically not randomized and there was a sequence of things that was not random that determined the treatment group, but all of these inferences are totally as if the study was randomized. No, yeah, and I appreciate you breaking that down because definitely when I was just perusing articles and I saw that one, it was, you know, a lot of people were talking about it on Twitter. And, uh, you know, I, as soon as you read the title, like the subtitle is non-randomized trial. And it's like, oh, well, then I don't need to read that. <laughs> so yeah. really, and like from an editorial perspective, I agree with you. I think it was a mistake to like make, you know, make that the headline um, because really it's more interesting to just look at the actual results and yeah. if you, knowing that they did it based on MRN, it's like, yeah, that is basically randomized. So, so I mean, yeah, to me, the most striking thing was like, even with people being in an intervention arm, it was so hard to get them to stay prone. <laughs> like yeah. four hours a day is not that impressive. Right. When, when, and so, yeah, like it almost seems futile in some respects, but then if there's actually maybe possibly some harm associated with it, and that's hard to tease out for sure, if that's a real signal or not, it seems like it could be then even more of a reason not to bother patients with this. So I probably, yeah. I mean, like I said, I haven't been very good about asking them to prone anyway. Um, this makes me even less inclined. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree, you know, and in terms of like what to make of all of this data, it's a little tough because I think showing that this works for the important outcomes like, you know, death in 30 days or 60 days, I would expect it to be a lot harder to show a benefit of proning awake patients as compared to proning really sick patients that are intubated in the ICU. And I think mm -hmm. the reason it would be so much harder is just that, like, if you look at those initial studies in ARDS with proning, you know, the mortality rate is like a third of the patients are dying within 30 right. days. And that all of that mortality risk, or at least a great majority of it comes down to, you know, how sick are their lungs? And if you can do something that improves that a little bit, it's going to have a big impact. Right. Whereas in a study like this, or all of the other studies that have been done on awake proning, there's all these other things that go into whether somebody ultimately dies at 30 days or 60 days, that much less of that mortality risk is attributable to the thing that you're trying to fix. Mm -hmm. And so just by definition, it's going to take a much bigger sample size to tease oh, yeah. out a benefit like that. 
And so, you know, part of me says, ah, sure, this still could work and we wouldn't have found it yet. But I think just as like a matter of evidence-based practice philosophy that like we really ought to spend our time focusing on the things that have been shown to work and doing Mm -hmm. those reliably. And Mm -hmm. that, you know, things that haven't been shown to work, they probably either don't work or they don't work that well. And if they don't work that well, like focus on the things that we can do. And so I'm with you there that, you know, I think probably my approach here is not going to be to um, offer it to everybody or to, you know, to try to convince people to do it. I think you could make an, a compelling argument to kind of do a end of one type trial, like in each individual patient to say, Hey, try proning, you know, see if the oxygen's better, see if they tolerate it, see if they're comfortable, you know, and maybe do it if it seems like they're getting some benefit from those metrics. But even then, you know, who knows whether those patients really benefit in terms of the other things or not. So I, I, Mm -hmm. likewise, I I don't know if they necessarily should be in the guidelines to apply to everybody um, at this point. Yeah. Interesting. Cool. Um, well, let's see, got some other trials, just wanted to like briefly touch on, um, not go into a lot of depth, but, uh, there was one published in the April issue of JAMA cardiology. This was a comparison of clopidogrel monotherapy after one to two months of dual antiplatelet therapy with 12 months of dual antiplatelet therapy in patients with acute coronary syndrome. It's a very long title. The acronym is the stop dapt to ACS trial. So, um, like most cardiology trials, this was a big one. They got 4,169 patients with acute coronary syndrome who got a PCI and they randomized them to either one to two months of dual antiplatelet therapy followed by clopidogrel alone uh, versus standard 12 months of dual antiplatelet therapy with aspirin and clopidogrel. And uh, this was a non-inferiority trial again. Um, but this one, I, I wasn't as clear on how, you know, how they were using that. They said it was a non-inferiority margin of 50% on the hazard ratio scale. And so um, when you actually looked at, you know, their outcomes, the, 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 the bad outcome happened in, let's see, it was 3.2% of the short dual antiplatelet therapy and 2.8% in the 12-month dual antiplatelet therapy group for an absolute difference of 0.37, which like didn't seem like a very big difference to me in the outcome, but I guess that did not meet criteria for non-inferiority in this case. And maybe it's because the sample size was big enough that it could actually make that distinction. But I don't know if you looked at this one at all. Yeah, yeah, I did. So I, I think the way they presented that 50% is as a relative effect size. And so, you know, what they were essentially trying to prove with their stats is, you know, if, if the event rate in the, in the short group was 3.2 and it was 1.6 in the uh, longer DAP group that they, if, if they could say that those two intervals didn't actually overlap, then they would say that it was non-inferiority, but that in this case, they did overlap just ever so slightly. And so they weren't able to sort of definitively say that the whole 95% confidence interval was on the right side of that threshold mm-hmm. of, um, of, uh, difference between the two arms. Um, and so this is one of those not non-inferior, <laughs> which is essentially saying that based on this, you can't really say much. Right. Like I, it didn't seem like you could say it's actually inferior, but you, you can't for sure be con, you know, confident that it's not <laughs> inferior. So yeah, you're totally right. That actually not non-inferior 
is not the same as inferior. Yes. Yeah. Unfortunately, our language our language doesn't have the, you know, the nuance to really get that. But anyway, so that that trial happened. Uh, another heart trial uh, came out in Lancet April 9th. This was reduction of dietary sodium to less than 100 millimoles in heart failure. It was a sodium HF trial. So 100 millimoles is the same as 1500 milligrams of sodium. And I think pretty standard, we recommend that we, you know, our heart failure patients try to do a low sodium diet. Generally to me, that meant like less than 2000 milligrams or even 2200 milligrams, which is pretty hard to do if you're actually keeping track. And, uh, and so this, you know, this was interesting. They, they, they wanted to go like really low sodium, less than 1500. So they randomized 800 patients who had NYHA class two to three heart failure, um, to less than 1500 milligrams or what they called usual care, uh, for 12 months. And when you actually looked at the median sodium intake for the treatment arm, it was 1658. So they didn't get the median below that 1500, but they did get a pretty good reduction from what the baseline sodium was. So they were on less sodium. And then the, uh, usual care arm was 2073, which I thought was also pretty good. If you have, 400 heart failure patients who are, you know, their median sodium intake is 2000 milligrams, like, you know, nothing to be ashamed of. But anyway, when they compared these two groups uh, for a primary outcome, that was a composite of uh, cardiovascular related admission to the hospital, cardiovascular related ER visits and all cause death within 12 months, there was no difference between the groups. And I guess that's not super surprising. And I think mostly because there was not really a huge difference in sodium intake between the groups. And it was already pretty low in both groups. Like if I really wanted to show a, a, a benefit, I'd want to be comparing it to like someone, you know, who was, who was uh, eating a lot of potato chips versus the person who was really counting their sodium. So I don't know if you looked at that one at all. Yeah, I did. It's interesting just that we've, uh, we've, reviewed all these non-inferiority trials where it seemed to me like this is the one that ought to be a non-inferiority trial since, <laughs> you know, the, the AHA already recommends that heart failure patients follow this diet of, you know, four, uh, 1500 milligrams roughly of daily sodium, you know? And so it seems like if, if the two were equivalent, I definitely would rather as a patient be on the not so low sodium group. Cause <laughs> yeah. as you mentioned, like, it's hard to keep your sodium that low. You're probably yeah. really influencing these people's quality of their, you know, enjoyment of food. Right. Um, and so I, I don't know why they didn't do it that way, but it, it, the, I was, I was glad to see that it didn't show a big benefit just cause I, you know, I, the sodium restrictions are super onerous on patients. Yeah. Although it did have some improvement in quality of life scores, uh, which makes it a little ambiguous. That was one of their secondary, uh -huh. um, uh, endpoints that the NYHA, heart failure class and quality of life were both better in the sodium group, low sodium group. So gosh, I don't know what to make of that other than it probably won't change anybody's mind or any of the guidelines. Right. And I guess it's hard to, cause this isn't like, you know, they're not blinded. And so I feel like subjective questionnaires then become less helpful if the patient isn't even blinded to what they're doing. So right. They're spending all this effort <clears throat> on trying to restrict their diet. You know, you got to think. Oh it's yeah. Work. My quality of life's way better doc. Yeah. yeah. Even though uh, I can't eat anything. <laughs> yeah. But at least, uh, I don't know, somebody needs to do the same trial with 
fluid restrictions. I mean, I don't know. That's mostly right. a hospital thing. I hope nobody's right. making fluid restrictions in outpatients, but right. definitely it doesn't even make sense in inpatients, but that's yeah. not it's been a different issue. Yeah, no, I'm with you there. And even like the, you know, the low sodium diet in the hospital, like, you know, I used to be so rigid about that and strict with patients, but now I'm kind of like, look, you know, it kind of depends on the magnitude of what we're trying to accomplish, but it's like, if we're already giving you this much Lasix or Bumex or whatever, like if you end up sneaking in, you know, a bag of chips, it's probably not going to have a huge impact on, you know, what we're doing. But, and if that makes you happier, like, I just hate being the salt police too, or the diet police in general, like probably the only one I'm actually strict about is renal diet. Like I'm definitely trying to keep these people's potassiums (laughs) under control, but yeah, I need to, uh, make an advanced directive that says, if I get hospitalized, give me a regular diet and an extra dose of LASIK. It'll be fine. (laughs) Regular diet plus LASIK. So that'll fix it. Yeah. Beautiful. All right. Another short blurb here for uh, this article is called estimating excess mortality due to COVID-19 pandemic from 2020 to 21. This was published in Lancet on April 16th. So basically they were just trying to estimate Um, how many people died that wouldn't normally have died if we didn't have a worldwide pandemic. And so they looked at the reported deaths that are due to COVID throughout the world was 5.9 million worldwide from 2020 to end of 2021. Um, And then using observed mortality data and then models of expected mortality, they estimated that the excess mortality from COVID-19 was 18 million people worldwide. Um, with the excess mortality rate highest in Russia and Mexico, Um, but pretty freaking high in the United States as well. So just kind of an interesting way to look at the, you know, the true cost of the COVID pandemic. One, one element of that is all of the, you know, unfortunate, you know, consequences of people not being able to get care for other medical problems. Um, A lot of, a lot of excess mortality. Yeah, I thought this was a great paper, you know, and it's it's the IHME folks from from UW that kind of had that COVID tracker from the beginning that did all this modeling. And it does just bring home the, you know, in the US, I think our like official statistics were like just right before crossing a million uh, COVID related deaths. And, yeah. and this model had it at like 1.15 million, I think of excess death, which if you look at that spread, it's not very far, but they had one figure in there that sort of showed how much different the reported statistics were from the modeled statistics. Um, and you know, there's large portions of the world where they are very, very different, you know, mm-hmm. the places yeah. like, uh, you know, Russia and Mexico, as you mentioned, being some of them, uh, yeah. but definitely a worldwide pandemic and uh, affected a lot of places uh, very heavily. The yeah. Indi- India had India. The, I think, the mm-hmm. largest, you know, absolute uh, right. excess mortality. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like 4 sobering. million or something. Yep. Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting if you look back at like the uh, 1918 uh, influenza pandemic, um, you know, if you look and try to figure out how many people died from that, it's it's hard to get like an actual number because um, people will estimate anywhere from like 10 million to 50 million, but then they'll they do similar estimates for the excess mortality. So it's it's nice to have some you know fairly good estimates available to us now for this one. 
Yeah, it would be really interesting in terms of the policy implications to see the same data standardized for age or or comorbidities, you know, to mm. be able to kind of more uh, compare apples to apples, how hard it hit different places. But, you know, that's yeah. a whole nother line of inquiry. I'm sure other yeah. folks are working on it. Cool. Uh, then here's another one uh, from the Annals of Internal Medicine, published March 29th. It was risks of anaphylaxis with intravenous iron formulations. So this was interesting to me just because we give so much IV iron in the hospital. I don't know if you guys probably don't give it as much in the ICU because that's not like the life-threatening problem, but like everybody comes in, everyone's anemic, you know, everyone gets their iron levels checked. You know, most people's ferritins are okay, but their transfer and saturation is always, you know, a little bit low. And so then the pharmacist is like, do you want to give them iron? <laughs> You're like, sure, whatever. And I think the pendulum swung to like, let's give everyone IV iron while they're here to now it's like, well, this is actually an expensive intervention that I don't know if it's like helping everybody. So let's be selective about how, who we tank up. But in any case, um, you know, the question always comes up, like, which formulation should we give them? And we're pretty much at our hospital restricted to iron sucrose. Um, that's the standard one we give, but you can't give, you know, fully replete someone with one infusion. It takes at least three infusions to like really tank someone up versus something like iron dextran. You can do it in one dose. And so that would be really nice. But the reason that we don't do that is because there's this, you know, supposed increased risk of anaphylaxis with iron dextran. So that's why this article looked interesting to me. It's a retrospective cohort study using Medicare data. Uh, so these are all older patients who got IV iron from 2013 to 2018. And they were looking at the incidence of anaphylaxis. And importantly, the Overall incidence was low for every type of iron, um, but it was higher in iron dextran and then another form of uh, ferrimoxitol, um, but it was 9.8 cases per 10,000 administrations for iron dextran. So I think since I've been a hospitalist for about five years, I've probably given close to 10,000 doses of IV iron super. <laughs> no, <I'm just> <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I've, I, I, I hope I haven't even given more than like 30, but um, I've probably given 30, but anyway, the overall risk is pretty low. And so I do think, you know, if you really, really wanted to give someone iron dextran, I think that's okay. But in comparison to iron sucrose, which had a much lower rate, it was 1.2 cases per 10,000 administrations, you know, that is your safer option. But overall, the risk is fairly low. Yeah, I thought it was I thought it was pretty interesting just because at least, uh, you know, from somebody that doesn't dig into this data all the time, you know, that there used to be these high molecular weight dextrans that um, ultimately I think it was pulled from the market. Um you know, 10 years ago or so that had a higher risk, even than I think the current Dextran formulations. Um, yeah. but that, that, that just association of like IV iron anaphylaxis just sticks mm -hmm. and it's much harder to remember, Oh, like, yes, this formulation, not this formulation. Yeah. And that there, you know, I perceive that there's still sort of a reluctance to, to order IV iron among some folks, just because they're not aware that like, oh, that was one formulation out of mm, several options mm -hmm. that had this really high rate of it. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know what the, whether tanking everybody up or not is the right thing. I think the data is pretty clear that um, 
if you're going to get PO iron, it's going to make your GI tract uncomfortable. And so, <laughs> yeah. I don't know, maybe that'll be clause two on my advanced directive is no oral it. iron. <laughs> yeah. If I need iron, give it to me IV next time I'm on Jenkins service. Well, and like, yeah. Oh, I'll, <laughs> I'll give it to you IV for sure. Um, but yeah, no, it's just funny too. Cause you'll have patients come in for like random stuff that has nothing to do with their iron levels. Right. And then and you walk in to go visit them in the round, they're getting that bag of iron and they're like, yeah, they just started giving me this iron. And it's like, oh yeah, we probably should have told you before we infused you with this, with this dark brown substance. Oh uh, yeah. So, that does have to be confusing as a patient. Yeah. It, it's just rampant. The IV irons everywhere. Um, not, not as much as vitamin D though. Okay. Uh-oh. The next one and last one, and and I didn't give Brian a heads up on this one, but that's okay. I'll just go through the basics real quick. But this one was the pickle juice intervention for cirrhotic cramps reduction trial. Somehow they got pickles as their acronym. Um, Doesn't quite fit to me, but that's okay. So they published this one April 10th in the American Journal of Gastroenterology. And this was a small trial, but interesting. They included 82 patients with cirrhosis who had a history of at least four muscle cramps in the prior month. And so many of our listeners know that cramps can be a serious issue for people with cirrhosis. Um, And there's other disease populations as well, like chronic kidney disease, where this is an issue. And a lot of these cramps are happening at night and it can be a pretty big quality of life issue. And there's really not great treatments for it. Um, you know, quinine is like really dangerous and probably works, but it's dangerous. So we don't use that. And, uh, you know, baclofen gets used a little bit, but that has a lot of side effects. And so we really do need better treatments for cramps. You know, I feel like in the hospital, when someone has cramps, everyone immediately just gives them magnesium. And I think there's probably no proven benefit to that, but it makes everyone feel better. It's like, okay, whatever. But there is like at least anecdotal and there's probably like better evidence out there that pickle juice works in some populations for cramps. And so these guys were like, well, let's see if it works in folks with cirrhosis. Now, obviously, people with cirrhosis already have trouble managing sodium, right? They're already holding on to excess sodium. So you may think at first blush, maybe that's not very safe to be drinking pickle juice if you're a cirrhotic with a low sodium diet. But What they did is they randomized people to pickle juice or tap water. And at the onset of cramps, you were supposed to sip a tablespoon of pickle juice. And it had to be dill or kosher specifically. Hmm. And uh, that that was it. That was the intervention. And they asked everyone in the pickle juice arm to like go out and buy at least three jars of, of pickles. So they would have plenty of this stuff on hand. And they were supposed to drink it at the onset. So like, I don't know what these people were doing at work. If they just had like a jar of pickle juice, like at their desk or something, if a cramp hit them. But in any case, that was the intervention. The primary outcome was a change in cramp severity measured by a visual analog scale for cramps. And they assessed this 10 times over 28 days using interactive text messages. So labor intensive data collection with a cell phone. They, they only got 74 of the 82 patients to finish the trial and their mean baseline visual analog scale for cramp score was 4.2. <clears throat> this did decrease by 2.25 points in the pickle juice group arm compared to 0.36 points in the tap water group. So I think as far as their primary outcome goes, they did demonstrate efficacy. 
Um, there was no difference in sleep or quality of life assessments. Um, there was no evidence that this helped prevent future cramps, but also there was no evidence that it worsened weight gain or ascites. Um, and so I do think, you know, this is a small trial. It's obviously not blinded. You can tell what you're drinking. So like, again, we're using these, these scales that are, could be a little subjective. So I don't know, you know, how perfect it is, but if it doesn't hurt people, I think, sure, recommend it, right? Um, and, uh, you know, one of the questions that was being discussed on Twitter about this is like, well, why does it even work? Like, is it just like the sodium, you know, little sodium bolus or whatever? And, and one of the authors, Elliot Tapper, who's a, you know, a popular hepatologist on Twitter, he pointed out that he thinks it's actually the pH of pickle juice. It's that it's acid and that something about acid exposure in the oropharynx like interrupts this cramp loop, which sounded a little voodoo-ish to me, but maybe that's true. But it, anyway, you could probably use other acidic things like apple cider vinegar or something like that too, but pickle juice may be more palatable to some people. I don't think we're going to be able to offer this in the hospital. Not but... adding it to the formulary. <laughs> yeah. I'll go to the PNT committee and see about that. Just like little ampules of it that they could just. <laughs> Sponsored by Big Pickle. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I thought that was a funny trial that may have some utility. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I mean, I, that maybe that one's more the future of trials than, the, than our proning example. We just have, yeah, one interesting intervention. That, assessments I mean, by text message yeah that's cool if, if you look at this this tapper guy you know he's cranking stuff out and a lot of them are these smaller interesting trials like this so yeah if you have a dream if you have a clinical question don't let the complexity and cost of a large randomized clinical trial you know dissuade you from getting answers i love it just start your own non-randomized trials <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, perfect. I think these guys, they actually did randomize it though. So that means they were like paying some database to give them a random number. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. Uh, it definitely takes some resources. Uh, it's cool. I don't know. I'm glad they did it. I would have just done it by MRN. So yeah, same. Okay, cool. Well, thanks for joining me, Brian. Uh, pleasure as always. Hope, yeah, that was great. Hope everything stays good in the ICU and we'll see you next time. Sounds good, man. See you. All right. See you.